Then uh, we have decided, or the member states have decided today, uh, that there are particular cooperation activities with Roscosmos on Luna 25, Luna 26, and Luna 27 uh, will be discontinued uh, in detail. Uh, this means that uh, um, an instrument uh, which uh, was planned to be uh, mounted on Luna 25, uh, the instrument is called Pilot D, uh, should be dismounted um, and not uh, fly on that uh, particular uh, spacecraft. Uh, and I have already communicated this decision to the head of Roscosmos. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, Downlink listeners. You just heard Yusuf Ashbacher deliver the news that the European Space Agency is dealing another blow to Russia's civil space program and its parent, the state-owned space corporation Roscosmos. Ashbacher is ESA's director general, and the news he delivered is a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and comprehensive economic sanctions that include space technology. The three Luna missions included two unmanned moon landers and one orbiter. Last month, ESA stopped cooperation with Russia on the ExoMars mission. And more happened this week. The DIA released its Security and Space Report 2022. I recommend reading it along with similar reports from the Center for Strategic and International Studies and the Secure World Foundation. We covered these topics in last week's episode. Also this week, there was another space agreement that did not include Russia or China for that matter, and that was between the U.S. and India. Here's a short excerpt from U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin on Monday. Well, Secretary Blinken, Minister Singh, Minister Jai Shankar, it's great to be here with you for this fourth U.S.-India 2 plus 2 ministerial dialogue. As my friend uh, Secretary Blinken has rightly noted, we're meeting at an important moment in our partnership. It's been nearly two decades since we signed our first bilateral defense framework, and our partnership has grown immensely ever since. Today's meeting shows that we're working together to build one of the most consequential partnerships of our time. We've made important commitments today that will drive technological innovation and cooperation in emerging defense domains, including space and cyberspace. For example, we're committed to launching new defense space exchanges later this year between our Space Command and India's Defense Space Agency. And I'm pleased to announce that just a few moments ago, we signed a bilateral space situational awareness arrangement. And this will support greater information sharing and cooperation in space. Now, you've got to wonder, with all these agreements and disentanglements, how does this affect negotiations with Russia on a range of space issues, from space traffic management to kinetic anti-satellite weapons? Russia is a major spacefaring nation, at least for now. For answers, I went to Victoria Sampson. She's the Secure World Foundation's Washington, D.C. office director, but she's much more. Her expertise in space international relations is sought after by policymakers and international organizations, including the UN. Here is our conversation. 
Hi, Victoria. It's great to have you back. Hey, Laura. Thank you for having me back on. As it's been a while since you were last on, take a moment and tell us a bit about yourself and what you do and what you're working on right now. Sure. Um, Well, I'm the Washington Office Director for the Secure World Foundation. The Secure World Foundation is a private operating foundation that focuses on long-term sustainable use of outer space. So we push for best practices and norms of behavior to make sure that space is accessible to and usable for all over the long term. Um, Right now, I'm doing a couple things, um, largely um, preparing uh, the latest update of Secure World's Global Counterspace Threat Assessment, which is coming out in a couple weeks, and um, of course, following what's going on in Russia. All eyes are focused like a laser on Russia's war in Ukraine, and also on whether China will support Russia's military endeavors, yet satellites still need to be launched. Uh, The International Space Station needs to be resupplied with food and water and important work for the Russian cosmonauts and the American and European astronauts. But all is not well in the international community and definitely not in the space community either. Victoria, you are in regular contact with the international space community leaders, both in government and in the commercial sectors. Could you give us a sense of the mood and what's changed? Well, there's a real sense of unsettlement right now, just because um, historically, cooperation for the International Space Station has been able to supersede geopolitical issues on the ground. Um, It's acknowledged it, but it has not been disrupted by it. Um, the National Space Station has been continuously um, inhabited since 2000, which is pretty amazing. And then just for maybe for those who are unfamiliar with it, um, it was built specifically to have two modules, one, the Russian module, and then two, the it's called the US module, but it's really the US, um, can, can, the Canadian Space Agency, the Japanese Space Agency, European Space Agency, so a mix. But basically, it was built for the two modules. They have to work together. They have to be interoperable. It's a machine that's intended to be built that way. And that that was deliberate. Um, However, um, of recent times, since Russia invaded Ukraine, there has been a lot of, um, I would say, inflammatory language. And as always, comes back to Twitter. Um, The head of the Russian space agency, um, Rogozin, has been doing a lot of um, statements on Twitter, you know, implying that maybe Russia would let the space station fall into the ocean uh, because the Russian half of the space station is the one that's um, got the thrusters and is largely in charge of moving the space station around with station keeping. The U.S. side does the solar arrays to create power for the whole space station. And then both sides work on mission control. Uh, Rogozin said other things like, well, you know, maybe we won't get, we won't let people get the space station. You guys need broomsticks. Uh, you know, things of the nature. And then, you know, Roscosmos um, put out a video a couple weeks ago, which they said, oh, it's just a parody. But in the video, it had um, the cosmonauts leaving the space station and leaving a, a U.S. astronaut behind. Um, ha, ha, ha. So, I mean, again, not that they could do that or would do that. Like, I truly believe they would not. But it does send a message. And it does, I think, express how toxic relationship has come. Um, This Twitter war has come in response to um, Western sanctions against Russia for the invasion of Ukraine. Um, And that has definitely had other things as well, other consequences in terms of cooperation between the West and Russia. Um, For example, um, Russia was supposed to launch a series of satellites by um, uh, company OneWeb. Um, OneWeb is partially owned by the UK government. They invested a bunch in it when it got came back from bankruptcy. And uh, the Russians said, look, you know, we will allow you guys to launch from our, you know, on our, our vehicle, 
but if you only let two things go. One, um, you need to promise that none of the satellites will be used against Russia in the military campaign. And of course, you know, who can, who would want to promise that and who could promise that? And then two, the, uh, the Russians said, okay, the UK government has to divest itself of its investment in um, OneWeb. And of course, Brits were like, no way, no way we're going to do that. And so then Russia could say, well, you know, we wanted to launch it, but they choose, chose to be unreasonable. And the Russians' uh, space vehicle, space launch vehicle, is a true workout course. It's used for a lot of launches. And so a lot of companies are like, oh, shoot, we can't use that now. And, you know, looking at alternatives, which there are not truly a lot. And then another option, another thing that happened is that the Europeans were going to have um, the ExoMars mission um, launched on a Russian vehicle. And the European Space Agency made a decision that uh, due to sanctions on Russia, they could not do this, which has consequences because just due, I'm no planetary scientist, but I've been told uh, due to the alignment of the planets, there are only so many options to get something up to Mars and you can only do it every so often. So the next, um, they were gonna launch in September. Uh, they are gonna have to push it back at least a couple of years. I think the wait time is 22 months, but if they cannot use a Russian vehicle, they will have to have one built, which means the next time after that will be, you know, nearly two years after that. So we may be looking at a 2026 launch. And of course, it's a little bittersweet because the reason why the Europeans were even looking at Russia to launch their vehicle was that NASA pulled out about a decade ago. So, you know, them's the consequences. But anyway, so what we're seeing is truly, uh, I would say almost a a toxic relationship between the West and Russia and space, which is again, unusual. I would point out that again, going back to the space station, you know, it survived the US pulling out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty. It survived Russia invading Ukraine, uh, Crimea, but things seem to be different. And um, I would also point out when the Russians um, invaded Crimea, the US put sanctions specifically against Rogozin, who's had, again, the head of the Russian space agency at that point. It was due to the relations um, in another job he had. So, I mean, it survived even that, um, but we're seeing real changes. Now, of course, I will say, going back to the International Space Station, that um, the Russians can say what they want, but truly, I don't think, you know, they're going to drop it into the ocean. Uh, but right now, the agreement for the space station is to cooperate through 2024. Now, the United States would like to extend the International Space Station through 2030, but all the partners need to agree. Even before Russia invaded Ukraine, Russia did not say one way or the other what their intentions were with this. Now, due to the terrible state of the Russian civil space program, I would say it is unlikely that they'll take their marbles and go home and then build their own space station. I just they don't have the resources, frankly, or the, the quality control at this point. But who knows? They may decide that it's not in their benefit to continue. They may not pull out 2024. They may pull out at some time before 2030. So I think it really behooves the U.S. side to think about, okay, worst case scenario, what do we do if we don't have that option there in terms of the Russian side? And again, these are things that I think were truly unthinkable just even months ago. You know, it was almost seen as a sacrosanct relationship that no matter what happened on the ground, um, Russia and the West could cooperate in the space station because that's what it is. It's a diplomatic tool of outreach. But, you know, things change quickly. How does this invasion affect the work to produce an internationally agreed set of standards to prevent space debris and improve on-orbit safety? Well, there's a couple different international discussions ongoing about that. Um, the United Nations, it divides its space discussions into two different organizations, largely. You have the civil space discussions, the United Nations, the United Nations Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, or COPUS. 
And then you have the security discussions happening in the conflict of disarmament. So let's start with, you know, again, space debris mitigation and, you know, space flight safety. COPUS, it just had its science and technical subcommittee meeting um, in February. Um, it was largely virtual, I believe, because of COVID concerns. And um, it was, you know, pre-invasion. So they were able to meet and have the discussions. And, you know, the big thing they're focusing on right now is that COPUS came up with some guidelines, 21 guidelines, as a matter of fact, in, in 2019, about best practices and norms behavior, basically long-term sustainability guidelines. And so the big the big discussion point is, well, A, how do we implement them? How do we make sure that countries have the capacity to carry them out? How do we monitor how they're being implemented? And then, of course, 21 guidelines does not cover every aspect for space sustainability. What do you do for the 2.0, the, the, the next version of the LTS guidelines? So that's what we're looking at. Russia has been involved in those conversations more or less in a participatory fashion, I think. Of course, Russia is always going to rush us, so they're never going to make things easy. But I think, largely speaking, SDSC, the, the committee went on without too much of an issue. Now, the other side of the, of course, we'll find out, um, they have the legal subcommittee of, of COPOS's meeting in April. Um, and so we'll see how the Russian approach is at that point. And then the plenary, which is the big everyone meets um, in COPOS, will be in June. And so, again, we'll see what happens. I mean, I think so much of it just depends on where Russia is in terms of the invasion of Ukraine. You know, if they've stopped things, if they've pulled out, if it's still ongoing, if they're still very much a prior state. I mean, I think it will be. But, you know, just a lot depends. So we'll see, I think, TBD on that part. In terms of the security side of discussions, there has been a movement and a UN resolution to create something called an open-ended working group. Um, basically, and I know for those of you who are unfamiliar, that sounds kind of terrifying to have an open-ended working group for the UN. You think, oh my God, it's the United Nations just going to talk forever and never come to a conclusion. Um, the idea behind an open-ended working group is that it is open to any UN state. So it's inclusive in terms of that, but it's limited in terms of how long it can meet. You know, they're supposed to meet twice this year, twice next year, with the idea of having discussions about deciding what are what are considered to be uh, norms of behavior that an national community would like to see happen in terms of space security and stability, and what's considered responsible behavior in space, what's considered irresponsible, with a goal of getting some sort of consensus-driven report that could be given to the UN Secretary General. And at some point, you know, maybe we would see um, a general assembly resolution coming out of it, and then eventually maybe build as something more legally binding. Um, I know it sounds like it's a long process, but you know that's how it works. You know, national community—you don't get these things, you know, come out of nowhere. It takes a while to build consensus around what sort of priorities the national community would like to see have happen. And space is a team sport. I mean, it's you know? it's not like it's not like a bilateral discussion where you can you know agree to you know open a border or close a border or you know. I see this movement as being the possible foundation of a treaty that is years down the road, but you have to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere. And as you said, I mean, space is very much, it's a shared domain. The actions of one actor can affect everyone's ability to use it. And so you don't need to get 100% agreement. Um, in fact, I would argue for this particular effort, I'm at the point where I'm like, Russia can do whatever Russia wants to do. I, I truly don't know that they're entering these discussions in good faith. And so when the Open End Working Group meets in May for the first time, because they were supposed to meet back in February, but Russia managed to uh, kneecap the whole thing due to regular uh, parliamentary procedures. <laughs> but anyway, so when they meet in May, you know, maybe at that point, you know, if Russia is not going to participate in a good faith effort, 
you know, maybe they, they aren't part of this conversation at this point. I don't know, we'll see. Um, I think it, something really powerful can still come out of the discussions, whether or not an agreement comes out. You know, there is consensus building internationally that deliberately creating debris on orbit is a bad thing. And so there's starting to be more and more interest in terms of some sort of anti-satellite test moratorium or test ban. And maybe that might be something that's introduced at this um, open-ended working group or maybe comes out of the discussions. Uh, there may be, you know, it's starting to be more of an agreement that it's considered bad form to deliberately get close to other country satellites without their permission. Um, so, you know, maybe we'll have something like that. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways in which we can move the conversation forward, whether or not Russia is part of the conversation at this point. I think at some point they will want to be part of the conversation again, but we'll see. Um, there's a lot of questions up in the air. And speaking along those same lines, because, you know, Russia and its military invasion of Ukraine, as well as the ASAT test back in November, the militaries of the Five Eyes community, plus France and Germany, signed the Combined Space Operations Memorandum of Understanding just days before Russia's invasion kicked off. I would imagine that other spacefaring nations and those who have that ambition to defend you know, space assets together will want to join. You know, what what are you seeing out there? Are are, are other nations wanting to figure out ways of of being able to have a, a a group defense? Well, I mean, so all right. So going back to this um this agreement that was signed in February, and you're right, I think it was like February 22nd. I mean, it was just literally a handful of days before. Russia invaded Ukraine. I mean, basically, more it was really built off, as you said, the U.S. Five Eyes. So the the the, the countries that the United States and its allies have shared a lot of intelligence with, plus France and Germany, um, with the idea of just kind of setting out principles and guidelines for protecting space capabilities, um, and you know, call to action for future collaboration, but. It doesn't say, you know, it's not like just and not that you said this, but just make sure some listeners get the wrong idea. It wasn't like it was creating a NATO with an Article 5 response where, you know, the US and allies have said, okay, we agree that if we're attacked, we're going to respond in full. No, it's just more a matter of, I think, trying to link up and um the the different military space organizations um in terms of how they approach priorities for space protection and really trying to sync up you know, what, what their priorities are for this sort of thing. And, you know, this can have consequences for you know, international discussions, you know, if they're coming at it from more or less the same way. Um, and it, you know, it is kind of geared towards the idea that the, you know, threats to security and stability are Russia and China. So, you know, obviously that's going to self-select out who wants to be, you know, signing on to these sort of things. But again, I don't think it's also, it's not like something where the U.S. has put out like the Artemis Accords, where the U.S. has said the Artemis Accords, anyone who wants to join on, you know, please do. This is something very specific between the military organizations and the intelligence communities of those militaries. So it's, you know, it's kind of building on a pre-existing um relationship of trust. Um, having said that, you know, I think a lot of countries are looking at what's going on in terms of how, you know, the use of space is evolving, how Russia's anti-satellite tests create a tremendous amount of debris in orbit that is still very destabilizing, um, and thinking about how they may want to either change their approach to space security and stability, or maybe, you know, realign how they've been approaching it. Um, I think a lot of countries saw space security as something that was more something for the geopolitical superpowers to discuss and was not relevant to their interest. And I think it's probably changing things a lot. 
I will say I don't, I think it's probably a good idea to try to, you know, if the U.S. has these particular interests to get allies on board or partners or, you know, however, whatever term of choice you want to use, um, like-minded nations, I think it helps build kind of a common understanding of what sort of principles and um, types of behavior that they would like to see on orbit. And this can only be used um, as a launching point for other international discussions. But at least if you get a lot of people signed on, you're, you're, you're possibly creating a groundswell of movement or support for something that can be, in the end, in the U.S. national security interest. And lastly, how does the fact that a private individual with the technology and the means has inserted himself and his space launch and satellite communications companies into the conflict? I'm speaking about Elon Musk, obviously, and his Starlink satellite communications network. The terminals he's provided to the government of Ukraine are reportedly being used by that country's drone and artillery units to coordinate on targeting. Now, insofar as I know, no laws be, is being broken, and Musk is on the right side of history. But still, the fact that a single private citizen could play such a role in a conflict is, well, it's a first, no? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on how much you think Elon Musk has in terms of, you know, it is a rule by fiat over Twitter. You know, if he says something that's happened on Twitter, does that mean it's going to happen no matter what? Or are other people in his um, company able to say, okay, is there actually a business case for this and slow it down? So going back to the situation in Ukraine, you know, one of the things they called for was for, you know, um, Starlink terminals. But the question is, well, do they even have the, the capability to use the information? You know, were they able to did they even need it at that point? You know, or was it just more a matter of kind of sending out an SOS and hoping they could respond? So I think it's just kind of a difference in how you interpret what actually happened. Um, but I will say, I mean, it does change. I think it speaks to a larger conversation about the role of, you know, commercial satellite carriers, about the role of commercial earth observation companies. You know, they're taking over um, capabilities and things that used to be only done by government entities. And now you, there's a there's a private sector and it brings in the question, well, how do the laws of armed conflict apply to these? Are these considered non-combatants? So how do you distinguish between combatants and non-combatants? You know, that sort of thing. And are they considered targets? And, you know, there's a ton of gray areas here. Um, and it's kind of a whole new world we're looking at in terms of you know, the, how the international humanitarian law applies to space capabilities. Victoria, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on, Laura. I'll be back next week with another episode. And if you like the downlink, you can subscribe to it on all the usual podcasting platforms, or you can receive an alert when you follow the downlink podcast on Twitter at the downlink. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian. And to stay up to date on what's happening in the maritime domain, check out Cavus Ships. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. <laughs>